This is Illinois Public Media, WILL 580 AM and 90.9 FM HD3, Urbana. The following is an on... Okie dokie. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Coming to you live today, October 7th, 2012, here in WILL AM 580. Today's going to be the last show in Media Matters run. And who else to have for my last show but my longtime guest and collaborator, John Nichols. It's going to be a wonderful hour. We're going to be talking about politics. We're going to talk about media, elections, TV ads, Citizens United, the works, everything you want to know and talk about regarding to the elections this year. We're going to be doing it today on Media Matters. But before we go to our guest and our show, let's go to NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Giovanni. Along the Syria-Turkey border, more shelling. A Syrian mortar landed inside Turkey again today, prompting an artillery barrage in retaliation. It's the fifth consecutive day of cross-border fire. Traveling in Lima, Peru, Pentagon Chief Leon Panetta told reporters the U.S. is concerned. I'm sure that uh, the United States is using uh, diplomatic channels to convey uh, our concerns to the parties with the, with the hope that... Uh, the conflict there does not broaden. Elsewhere in the region, Israeli warplanes shot down an unmanned aircraft over Israel's southern desert. It's not certain who launched the drone. In Pakistan, authorities have stopped a big convoy from entering the tribal belt along the Afghan border to protest CIA drone strikes. NPR's Philip Reeves says the convoy carrying thousands of people has now turned back. The leader of the protest is Imran Khan, a former national cricket hero and a rising star in Pakistani politics. He wanted to take the convoy inside South Waziristan, a militant stronghold repeatedly targeted by American drones, for a peace rally. Pakistani security forces blocked the road a few miles from the border. After lengthy negotiations, Khan backtracked to a nearby town. Even before the convoy left the capital, Islamabad, yesterday, Pakistani officials warned it wouldn't be allowed into the tribal belt, citing security risks. Some 30 American Code Pink activists were in the convoy. They say their journey was a success. Although they didn't reach their destination, they were warmly welcomed by crowds and their condemnation of American drone attacks has been widely publicised. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Islamabad. On the Sunday talk shows, senior advisors to both presidential candidates clashed today over their candidates' performances in last week's debate. NPR's Allison Keyes tells us Big Bird was on the table, too. For the Obama camp, Robert Gibbs acknowledged the president didn't perform up to his own expectations. But Gibbs told ABC's This Week the Republican nominee walked away from nearly every position he's taken. Governor Romney had a masterful theatrical performance uh, just this past week, but the underpinnings and foundation of that performance were fundamentally dishonest. But senior Romney advisor Ed Gillespie says the Democrats' problem with the debate was a matter of substance, telling ABC's This Week his candidate... Had a fact-based critique of President Obama's failed policies that the president was unable to respond to. As for Romney's targeting Big Bird and PBS, Gillespie says Big Bird would be successful without a government federal subsidy. Allison Keyes, NPR News, Washington. From Washington, you're listening to NPR News. Radical cleric Abu Hamza al-Mazri and four other terrorism suspects made their first appearances in U.S. courtrooms this weekend. The men had fought extradition from the United Kingdom for years. NPR's Carrie Johnson tells us what comes next. Abu Hamza al-Masri declined to enter a plea to charges of hostage-taking and facilitating violent jihad. He's due to appear in a federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan again early next week. Two other men sent to New York to face charges they conspired with al-Qaeda to kill Americans have pleaded not guilty. They'll meet with the judge Tuesday to figure out a trial schedule. U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara says their arrival is a big step. The extradition of these three alleged terrorists to the U.S. is a watershed moment 
in our nation's efforts to eradicate terrorism. Meanwhile, in Connecticut, two men accused of running extremist websites are facing life in prison if they're eventually convicted at trial. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. At the box office, it's not a big hit with critics, but Liam Neeson's action sequel, Taken 2, has proven twice as popular as the original movie. Listen to me carefully, Kim. Your mother is going to be taken. People are going to come for you, too. What are you going to do? What I do best. According to studio estimates, Taken 2 led the box office with $50 million in ticket sales domestically over opening weekend. In the film, Neeson returns as a retired CIA agent who takes on thugs targeting his family. In California, gasoline prices up again, up by four cents. I'm Luis Giovanni, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesson, coming to you live today, October 7, 2012, here in WILL AM 580. This is going to be the last episode of Media Matters. I'm stepping down, moving aside, moving on. Uh, and I want to spend this hour with my dear friend, my co-author, and the person who's been on the show more times than any other guest in Media Matters history by a wide margin. Do you know how many times you've been on, John Nichols? I have absolutely no idea. And John and I are sharing but a I microphone can, I can today. tell you for sure that it's it's... It would probably come, you've been on ten and a half years? Mm-hmm. I'm going to bet three times a year. Um, so I'm going to shoot it in around 30? 30. 33. There 33 times. John Nichols yeah. been my guest. And uh, so we're going to be here for the full hour talking about politics, elections, our book that we're working on now with an editor breathing down our neck from New York <laughs> every day. We shouldn't be doing radio yeah, shows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and if you want to join us for this last episode and talk about media and politics, the number here at WILL, 217-333-9455. The toll-free line, as always, 1-800-222-9455. And, John Nichols, let's talk about the election, the presidential election. Um, what, uh, Where does it stand now in your view, and, and, and what's your take on how the campaign's gone so far? Well, you know, I think that everybody is probably as attuned to the situation as you and I are because we live in this age where elections have essentially become sports, right? This is a, elections are covered differently than they used to be. Um, not better by any measure, but without a doubt, uh, very intensely, at least for the class of folks that want to watch them. So everybody knows that Obama pretty much had the election wrapped up a week ago. Uh, then he went and debated Romney and now maybe he doesn't have it wrapped up. Uh, he had a very, very poor debate performance and, uh, to my sense, we are now going to have a one-month period of what, as much as you and I are critics of mm-hmm. our current political system and of how the media deals with it, pretty much what we should have, which is a pretty damn intense presidential race where uh, if Obama wants to win it, he is going to have to do a dramatically better job than he did on third or Wednesday of defining himself as a progressive because we are a center-left country, and especially on issues like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And the question is whether Barack Obama can deliver that message effectively at a time when Mitt Romney appears to be quite willing to lie, uh, and when it's all slathered in probably more money than we've ever seen in politics. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about these debates and this whole process of lying or, or not lying, because you know, I remember once I was at a job interview, I was on a committee that was interviewing people, and we had various candidates come in for a, some sort of administrative job at the university. And then we'd talk about them after they left. And, and I remember some of the people say, well, I really like how they talked about this or that. And it struck me as like such an, a lame and vacuous way to judge someone. It's sort of like if someone, a candidate says, I'm for education, and the I'm against style crime. was right. Yeah, and it's just, <laughs> I used, they used the proper buzzword, but it meant nothing about what they would actually do in office. Well, there's a very interesting article. It actually was written uh, just the last day or so. I think it was by a UCLA professor, and I apologize for not knowing his name, but you could easily, uh, folks could easily Google it. Um, and, and basically he said, you know, it's important to point out that, that uh, Americans have a constitutional right to lie about politics. And Mitt Romney has a constitutionally defined right to lie about politics. 
and not not merely to say what he wants, but to specifically and well well identified by the courts to lie. And this is kind of a caveat emptor thing, you know, something that that Americans should be well aware of that. You know, a huge portion of our politics now is not merely style. It is actual deceit. It is intentional deceit for the purpose of causing people to believe things that are not true and and perhaps as a result to vote for you. Romney, I think, prevailed in the first debate because of an almost unprecedented willingness to lie. And the odd part about this is that only in hindsight do we start to realize that this appears to be a pattern of the campaign. Because at the Republican National Convention, the striking thing that people came away from Paul Ryan's speech with was a sense, wow, he actually lied about a whole bunch of stuff. You know, when a plant closed in his hometown, uh, what he's going to do about Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, his his uh, running score, you know, his, his times for uh, different athletic uh, activities. And so we, we end up in a situation that, uh, you know, I think we're it's starting to dawn on us that we have a very, very dysfunctional system. And uh, and it's not just the advertising, it's the candidates themselves. And this is an unsettling thing uh, because uh, I think it, the on the one side, it, it makes politics an exceptionally disappointing game, and especially for those of us who cover it. On the other side, I my optimistic side says to me, we may finally be getting to a point where there will be a genuine opening for somebody who is a who really is telling the truth. And Mm -hmm. weirdly enough, I've spent a lot of time in the last week advocating strongly for inclusion of third-party candidates in the debate, which I think is is horrific. Have you gotten anywhere with that? (laughs) Yeah, really a long way. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I got some nice nice responses (laughs) to articles. Um, But, uh, you know, in doing that, I looked at uh, Gary Johnson, the Libertarian candidate's Mm -hmm. uh, campaign and his average Former governor of New Mexico. Very credible candidate. In any other country in the world, he'd be in the debates. Yeah. Any, any country basically in the, on the planet he'd be mm, in the debates mm-hmm. and and what i was powerfully struck by is he's produced some brilliant advertising uh in which he just has blunt stuff and it's very it is it is more appealing today than it would have been uh 20 years ago just because mm-hmm. it stands out so much john nichols our guest today in media matters i'm your host bob mcchesney phone lines open it's live 217-333-9455 mm-hmm. or one 800 Two 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 nine four five five. There's so much to talk about. So talking about what's going on with the elections. I mean, the big story, John, and you and I are writing a book on this, is that post Citizens United now we're seeing an influx of money uh, that's unprecedented. We've seen it. This, you know, we're looking at a ten or eleven billion dollar election, which will be what roughly double almost what it was yeah. four years it, ago. It, yes, almost exactly double. Almost exactly double. The vast majority of that money will go to pay commercial broadcasters for airtime. And then the vast majority of the ads run on those, uh, and the statistics here are astonishing, are negative ads. Uh, you know, the data I've been looking at is that, you know, maybe four years ago, 50 or 60 percent of ads were negative. Uh, now we're looking anywhere from 80 to 95 percent, and the final tally's done of negative ads. I mean, this is really, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore, are we, John Nichols? No, we really aren't. And, and it's a it's an interesting thing. Part of, and, and not to to spend too much time talking about the book that we're working on, but but one of the fascinating things in the it was an author meeting here. Yeah, yeah, listeners. folks, and welcome to, and welcome to our salon. <laughs> uh, but one of the interesting things about the book is that um, in looking at what the rest of the world does, almost every other developed nation of any size has a strong commitment to what are called. Uh, uh, party political broadcasts, uh, PPBs, and those are, are provided to the parties free by the government. Now, they may actually air on commercial stations, as in England. They air both on the BBC and also on commercial stations. But it is it is just a, a an, an explicit commitment made up front that advertising is going to uh, come out of the political parties uh, and it's going to be provided free of charge. Now, why this becomes significant, and I don't think we historically people saw this, but I think now we do. Most of the negative advertising that we see on TV, you know, while a lot of it comes from campaigns, the, disproportionately it comes from uh, super PACs and from independent expenditures. We don't even know who these people are. Yeah, the donors are anonymous. Well, and their names are things like, you know, rebuild America in oh, a really yeah. nice way and have some apple pie when you're finished. And so as a result, we have a... a, a a politics that is so disconnected 
from the players and uh, and is so, frankly, dishonest and that I think it really becomes another powerful argument for why we ought to we ought to do this differently. The the party political broadcasts in other countries, interestingly enough, are produced by the parties, but in cooperation with the people who provide them with the free airtime. And there's there is at least a minimal level of standards, mm-hmm. which we do not have. Those standards do not exist. Our guest today, John Nichols. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters and WILL AM 580. John, you know, one of the uh, big issues that's going on with this election, which is a new issue that really emerged in 2010, and I think it's something that is, in my view, rather disturbing, uh, is the whole campaign towards voter suppression, to make it harder for people to vote, to try to lower the number of people who actually participate in the system. And um, this is uh, the Democrats, who are usually the victims, in fact, almost always the victims of these laws. They've been, this is a purely partisan movement on the part of Republicans where they have majorities, uh, are fighting back now, apparently. Uh, where does this stand now? I mean, so, since so much of the election might ride, in fact, and who is allowed to vote and who's, who's not going to be allowed to cast their right to vote? Well, last uh, weekend, our friend Bill Moyers, who has been a frequent contributor to Media Matters over the years. Not as frequent as I'd like. Yeah, I know. We'd like him every week. And certainly, you'd rather say that he'd been on 33 times. But um, but it was called in. And, and I remember uh, not that long ago, we had a, a fundraising drive where he called in. We had a wonderful conversation at, at some length with him about a lot of this stuff. But last week, Bill Morris did a, a documentary on ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's a group funded by multinational corporations and very wealthy folks, the Koch brothers, people like that. And they do model legislation. Well, one of their pieces of model legislation for a number of years now has been a a voter ID bill that is very, very restrictive. And a host of other initiatives that make it harder to put referendums on the ballot, that uh, make it more difficult uh, in a whole bunch of ways to do democracy. And, And what you have to begin to recognize is there really are folks who figured out that the best way to win elections is to prevent the people who might not vote for you from voting. And, you know, it it seems like a complicated concept, but it's actually pretty easy. And that's what voter suppression is. And there is simply no question. It's well, well documented now that uh, multinational corporations, legislators who have allied with those corporations and the Republican Party itself, which has clearly provided legal assistance uh, in a number of these battles and certainly legislative support, have had a a concerted effort uh, over the last several years to make it much harder for certain classes of people to vote. And it's it's such a fascinating thing. Sarah Silverman, the comedian, Mm -hmm. had a cartoon or had a a comic uh, video the other day in which she went through all the classes that that survey research and academic research shows to be most affected by voter ID laws. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, low income elderly, people of color, students, you know, and she ran through and she says, what do these people have in common? Oh, yeah, they're probably going to vote for this guy. And she flashes a picture of Obama. <laughs> and that's what it's about. I, the, and you say it's over the last couple of years. You're right. Voter suppression has always existed. It's always been a part of our politics. But it's been over the last couple of years because there's simply no question that a lot of folks looked at the 2008 election and they saw all the young people who came out and voted for Obama, all the low income folks who came out and voted for Obama. And they're like, well, we can't have that again. And it is a real phenomenon. Well, I know that in Ohio, they struck it down. And in, in some states, they struck it down. What states right now are going, to your knowledge, John Nichols, are going to be implementing these new sort of stringent requirements uh, meant to suppress the vote? Well, what's interesting is almost none of them. Uh, they, they really have been they, – the courts have, in state after state after state, we've got about 11 different examples, shot them down. doesn't mean that all the voter ID laws are off the books, but the worst of them really have faced stumbles, as well as some of their other initiatives. And that is uh, you know, limiting early voting and making it harder to register on Election Day, a host of other changes. Courts have really intervened in a lot of ways, and it's, it's almost stunning the number of them have been shot down. And, and yet I would counsel against any comfort or caution because I would suggest to you that while voter ID was the, uh, you know, it's the icing on the cake. It was the perfect uh, victory for folks who wanted to really suppress turnout. The confusion that has surrounded it and the media confusion as well as the political confusion is such that I think we're going to have a very messy election day where, you know, maybe that that. 
Technically, laws have been struck down, but there will be an immense amount of confusion. To give you an example, in Pennsylvania, they struck the voter ID law down, but they did. They said that poll workers could still ask people for ID. Yeah. Now, if the person says, I don't have to have an ID, I've got my court ruling here, I don't have to do it, the poll worker can let the, has to let them vote. But if the person is confused or uncertain, you, and you see where the problem arises. And I know in some states, uh, citizens are allowed to just come in and randomly challenge people uh, for their right to vote. It's sort of like a right to go sort of citizen's arrest of someone and demand uh, some sort of documentation before they're allowed to vote or at least to hassle them, yeah. legally sort of bug people. And that, you know, I mean, it seems if you want to, like, you know, get people not to vote, to send a goon squad in to harass people as they're in line to demand paperwork from them, especially in neighborhoods that you know, don't always have the, the most uh, glowing relationship with the authorities. That's a good way to get people out the vote. Let me put it another way. Uh, in the United States, the overwhelming majority of states uh, have some restrictions on people with uh, current criminal convictions or ex-felons from voting. Uh, and fortunately, in the United States, uh, we run an awful lot of our social challenges through the criminal justice system. So we have tons of people who have problems with the law. Uh, and I would caution against suggesting that it is a particular minority grouping uh, or even economic class. You'd be stunned by the number of people with just tax problems. And end result is that when you make uh, voting a a kind of a, a obstacle course where you must produce paperwork, you must sign a lot of stuff, confirm a lot of things, you you do erect barriers because people get start to get cautious, concerned. But there's also something else. You know, we this goes back to a really dark part of our history. Uh, remember that William Rehnquist, who was Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, was exposed uh, in the 1960s, having been involved during the Goldwater campaign, with voter suppression down in Arizona, where they were literally challenging people at the polls. And you know, we kind of looked the other way on that. And and in hindsight, I, I remember that uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin voted against uh, putting Rehnquist on the court and said the reason he should not be on the Supreme Court of the United States is because he participated in voter suppression. A lot of Democrats didn't think that was a legitimate uh, argument for keeping him off. I would suggest to you that we have developed over many, many years a, a caution or a, a softness as regards voter suppression. So we allow people to get away with it. We see it almost as an acceptable tactic within our politics. And frankly, I, I'm very excited people have called it out this year. I think we have to do a lot more, though, because I don't think it's going away. Our guest today, John Nichols, you've just been listening to. John Nichols writes for The Nation magazine, periodically appears on MSNBC now, talking about politics, usually on The Ed Show, if I'm not mistaken, and is probably best known for being on this show 33 times over the last 10 and a half years, uh, and my frequent co-author. I'm Bob McChesney, of course, and this is Media Matters, the phone number here. If you'd like to call in with questions or comments, 217-333-9455, the toll-free number 1-800-222. 9455. Let's go to our phone lines now for our first caller. Line 4, Millstep, Illinois. You're on the air. Hi, thank you. So I would like to suggest uh, something that uh, is sort of a verboten uh, thing to say in America, whether it's liberals or conservatives, and that's that we have not lived in a democracy for quite some time now. It's sort of like saying you don't believe in God or you don't think America is the greatest country in the world. But if you and I have been doing this recently, when I go shopping, and whether it's uh, whatever store I'm in, uh, straight conversation with someone and ask them if they think they live in a democracy, and they say yes, and then I say, well, do you think your leaders care what you or the majority of people think or want? And they say no. Um, so I would suggest that anybody who cares about what's going on in this country needs to sort of step beyond this assumption that we live in a democracy and that we're going to get, get to where we all think we need to go to, which is back to a democracy, whether we're going to get there by constraining ourselves to uh, democratic means that have been so distorted and subverted that they're pretty useless to uh, use. Um, certainly voting for the Democratic Party isn't going to get you much, though. They certainly uh, have good popular speeches when they need be, and once they're in office, they do pretty much what the Republicans were going to do. Well, thank you very much, caller. And, and I'm going to let John Nichols feel this in a second, but I, I do want to point out uh, that there's been a great deal of research on this very issue over the last three years by social scientists, political scientists in particular. Uh, a couple of new books have just come out in the last uh, three or four months on this, which really do demonstrate 
unfortunately, much of what the caller says, which is when you look at what politicians do, what they vote on, what policies they pursue, uh, there's absolutely no evidence that poor working class or even middle class people in their districts have any influence on them whatsoever. Uh, there's a great deal of evidence that they basically are serving the interest of those the, the most privileged in their districts and in the nation. And the people who do this research are not doing it happily. This is distressing findings, but it's been confirmed now on, I would say, numerous independent, credible uh, surveys by some of our leading scholars. John Nichols? Well, this is actually a, a remarkably well-accepted concept. And it happens that, again, working on the, some of the projects Bob and I have been involved with, I've been going over a lot of polling. And I was looking at a poll on the proposal to uh, to do a constitutional amendment to overturn the Citizens United ruling to try and get money out of politics, and which, by the way, is very, very popular. In fact, it, remarkably enough, President Obama came out in favor of such an amendment over the summer, and everybody was shocked. They said, wow, that's amazing. It's very courageous. No, I suspect he had seen the polling, and the polling shows it's, you know, you get into the 60, even, you know, as it's explained, into the 70% range of people. People really want to do something about this. But buried in that poll was something that I think the caller would be particularly struck by. Um, they asked how what percent of people think that, you know, our country really works along sort of a democratic model, you know, where it really is. You know, government does it works in an efficient way to respond to what the people want. Fourteen percent of people said that. And only five percent of people said that there were adequate controls or restraints on corporations for from really running our country. And so the amazing thing is that, you know, out of 20 people, 19 of them get. That, that this thing is not working very well. And so the crisis becomes exactly what the caller gets to, this question of how do we do something about that? And it is absolutely clear that both major parties are uh, disinclined to go to the level of reform that, that you need in a republic of this sort. And, you know, we were talking about it before, and one hopes that this is the case, that the, the anger and the disdain for this system doesn't cause people to turn away, but causes them to demand something more and better. And the the hopeful signs in it, and, and I don't want to be, I'm not overly hopeful, because uh, I watched the debate the other day and I saw President Obama basically echoing Mitt Romney on Social Security in, in ways that were you know, deeply troubling. Uh, but the hopeful thing is that there are political figures who seem to be doing very, very well by being very blunt. And the best example is, is Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, openly socialist, uh, holding a U.S. Senate seat that was previously held by a Republican. And uh, before that, he held a U.S. House seat that was previously held by a Republican. Bernie Sanders, you know, is is not like coming from the most Democratic place in the world. Vermont has become a liberal state. But the seats he holds were held by Republicans before he held them. And, and certainly the state until two years ago had a Republican governor. And so from a state that is politically competitive, here's a guy who is very bluntly calling out both parties, particularly on issues like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And it looks as if, if we're right, that he will win re-election this year with something in the range of 70 percent of the vote, one of the biggest victories of any senator in the country. And and I think that's the flip side of it, that there is there is space for a blunt talk. Uh, the crisis, I think, is less in our politics, although our politics is a mess, than our media, which by and large tends to go along with the lie that somehow this is a, that we've got a functioning democracy when in many ways we don't. John Nichols, let's follow up on that media point, because this is something you and I write about a lot. And, you know, to a lot of people, I think you go online and, and there seems to be a blizzard of information on everything. So it seems like the, the what, last thing anyone has to worry about is there's not enough media. There's not enough coverage. But, I mean, if we look at actually who's covering uh, political campaigns in the United States and, and who's um, really looking at meaningful information voters need about actual governance someone will do once in office in their, in their reporting, uh, who's paying for campaigns, what the issues are, the funders want. What's the state of our campaign journalism, in your view, in the United States in 2012? It's, it's in full collapse, uh, full, unmitigated, sweeping collapse. Uh, and I give you a very simple example. Uh, I'm not somebody who's going to tell you that mainstream media does the best job 
in covering politics. I celebrate the rise of alternative media, particularly Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! and some of the incredible work they've done. Frankly, some of the folks on MSNBC who really have given alternatives, but also a lot of independent radio across the country, community radio and some public broadcasting. But still, most of our political information comes from mainstream media. And mainstream media simply isn't covering politics anymore. It's commenting on politics, but not covering. And I can give you, I think, probably a classic example just from this last week. And 20 years ago, uh, as a young reporter, I spent a year pretty much on the campaign trail with Bill Clinton and went everywhere, traveled all over the country. uh, And also was out there with uh, George Bush, the dad, interviewed them both, uh, you know, really for a full year was flying around with these guys. And I I worked for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and the Toledo Blade, mid-level daily newspapers. And, um, you know, when I got on the the campaign plane in in October, say, of 1992, uh, there wasn't one plane for Clinton. There were two, two packed jets full of mostly local reporters with different perspectives, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 local reporters more all asking different questions. Maybe somebody from a farm region asking about farm policy. Somebody from a uh, predominantly African-American community asking about African-American issues. You know. So these candidates got a lot of different questions. There are a lot of different perspectives on what they did. Uh, Wednesday, I went to an Obama event, and they had two platforms set up, You know, one for local media in Madison, Wisconsin. So it was right, or Thursday. It was right after the debate. Another platform for national media. And you're like, whoa, when the national media gets here, they'll fill that whole platform. It was absolutely astounding. President of the United States flies in the day after this critical debate, huge event in the campaign. And when the national media arrived, there was so much space left on that on the platform they'd set up that uh, they let me take my daughter up to take pictures. You know, I mean, there was like people could walk around. Uh, and, and really, it was a handful of reporters. So what we've done is we've essentially kicked local media, you know, like, uh, even mid-sized cities and local TV that used to do a lot of travel with the campaigns, they're gone. And they're gone for economic reasons. Mostly they've decided it, quote-unquote, costs too much to cover democracy. Our guest, John Nichols. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters here in WILL AM 580. We've got some callers who've been waiting patiently. Let's go back to the phone lines right now. Line 1 Savoy, you're on the air with John Nichols. president and uh, you were talking about the debate and uh, you talked about Romney's lies and Paul Ryan's lies. What about uh, the president and the vice president's lies? That's a great question. Thank you very much, uh, caller. John Nichols, uh, is lying uh, something that's a bipartisan activity? There's no question. I mean, you know, both parties uh, certainly engage in it. And, uh, you know, there has been a phenomenon this year, and and it's noted, frankly, not just by uh, Democrats, but also by some uh, conservative commentators, people like David Frum and Peggy Noonan, that that the Romney-Ryan campaign seems to have a particularly bizarre relationship with the truth. Um, It's it's, uh, And it may be rooted in the fact that uh, Mitt Romney has was once a liberal Republican, not a moderate Republican. That's a silly concept. He was a liberal Republican. He voted in Democratic primaries. He said in 1994 that he had nothing to do with Ronald Reagan, was at odds with the Reagan years. Uh, and this is a guy who now, you know, presents himself as a as a stone cold conservative until Wednesday night, until Wednesday night, when he suddenly became a moderate again. And and, you know, in such a, you know, it's kind of whipsawing situation. The truth uh, often gets you know kind of shredded. And then you have the famous Ryan speech, which was a really uh, troublingly disengaged with the truth. But I, I do think that it's important. I think the caller gets to a really a vital point. Uh, we don't have to have equality of dishonesty to recognize that both of these parties have have really uh, shaky relationships with with the truth. And you know, one of the most troubling ones is a, a lie of omission, and that is. Uh, again, we referenced it a question or so ago, but but when President Obama was in that debate, uh, there was the suggestion that he's the defender of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And yet, at a critical point, he says, well, Mr. Romney and I essentially have similar positions on Social Security. Well, it's one or the other. 
I mean, if you have a similar position to Mitt Romney on Social Security, then you want to begin a process of privatizing Social Security with the purpose of enriching Wall Street speculators. That's it's blunt, unquestionable reality. If that's where Barack Obama is, he ought to level with the American people because there are tens of millions who might not vote for him, you know, who, who would really like to know that. Um, instead, there is a sort of trying to have it both ways situation. And what what an awful lot of people fear, and those of us who actually cover politics as opposed to just elections fear, is that on November 7th, the day after the election, no matter who wins, you might end up with some of the same grand compromises as regards entitlement programs that should not be altered. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that also jumps out at me is that the key issues that uh, Paul Ryan has staked his career on and Mitt Romney, to the extent we can pin him down, has staked his career on, are issues that in general aren't especially popular with voters, especially the voters they need to get a majority in key states. So it's not an environment that lends itself to aggressively advocating or, or advertising your, your your actual positions and lends itself to um, maybe pointing in a different direction. Well, and, Here and, I am speaking euphemistically. Like, <laughs> whoa. But, but let us let us throw in one other thing because uh, it is sort of central to this. Money, right? Yeah. Um, it isn't just that Paul Ryan intellectually believes in necessary acts which happen to be unpopular. The weird thing is America has a remarkable history of accepting really unattractive ideas that that seem necessary. And we've done it a lot uh, in the context of wars, in the context of of immense sacrifice. Uh, So this is this is not a country that's incapable of dealing with uh, a blunt truth that has to be accepted. But we're talking about something altogether different. We're talking about politicians in both parties who take immense amounts of money from very wealthy people to take stands on issues that are popular with the very wealthy folks, but exceptionally unpopular with the vast majority of voters. And and so I do think that this is a disease that infects both parties. At this point, uh, there's little question that Ryan is the is the most uh, diseased in this regard, because his whole career is one of taking massive amounts of money from Wall Street speculators and insurance companies and then proposing reforms that are beneficial to them. But I, I would I think it would be absurd to try and absolve a lot of Democrats of the same sin. No, I think that the game is played similarly by both sides, and it's a, it's a system that lends itself to manipulation. Uh, let's go back to our phone lines. We've got a few more callers still waiting patiently. Uh, let's go now to line two, Naperville. Thank you for calling. You're on the air with John Nichols. Good afternoon. Um, getting back to the, the voter, what he referred to as uh, you know, suppression. Uh, you know, I, I live in suburban Chicago and, and, and you know, very familiar with the, the voter fraud that <clears throat> occurred, you know, uh, that was basically conducted by the, the Democratic machine there. And, uh, you know, so with that in mind, uh, I'm wondering why do you have a problem with voter ID when so much of the fraud that I have seen anyway has not been on the Republican side of the aisle, but on the Democrats? We all know what happened uh, during 1960 election with Mayor Daley and what he did to get out the the Democratic vote. Um, You know, so I guess what's the problem? I mean, you needed an ID to get, actually get into the de- Democratic convention this year. You actually had to show an ID. Why can't, what's wrong with showing an ID to vote? Excellent question, caller. Let's let John Nichols uh, field that one. Well, I, I think that's a superb question. And let's go, to the, let's go to the core concept there, going back to, you know, the great research that's come out about uh, Mayor Daley in 1960 is that he may not have committed any voter fraud. That, in fact, um, Daley who wanted to have influence with the Kennedy family, which controlled the merchandise mart. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people who were around at the time and who now analyze what happened then say that, you know, it's not surprising at all that John Kennedy got a big margin out of the very Catholic city of uh, Chicago and with the other voting blocks that were there. Uh, and what indeed may well have been the case is Daly held the votes back. He had them. It wasn't fraudulent. It was just that he, he wanted to be the one who delivered the victory to John Kennedy so Kennedy's dad would like him more. And, of course, this is still very much supportive of the caller's concern because we have in this country a completely dysfunctional election system. We have an election system that is so easily manipulated by political 
power brokers and those who are in charge in different places. Now, almost every other country in the world, and I'm talking not just you know Western democracies, but developing countries, have uh, election commissions. They have independent nonpartisan election commissions that run the elections uh, separate from local power brokers and uh, national political players. We don't have that in America. What we have is 50 different state laws uh, and then thousands of different laws within states at the county and local level. It's a disaster. It is ripe with possibilities for election fraud. But this is where I'd make the distinction. Election fraud versus voter fraud. Election fraud should be addressed. We should have a National Election Commission that really does set universal rules, basic standards for both voting and counting votes. We ought to have universal registration. Everybody's registered. And there should just be no question of that. But uh, the weird thing is voter fraud, actually people voting more than once or cheating, is such an uncommon thing that the, the notion that we have spent the amount of time we have worrying about voter IDs and all that is, is comic. It is, it is so irrelevant to the overall problem. Voter fraud, not a problem. Election fraud, a real concern. And what I would suggest to the caller is that, that we might well as a country get to a point of universal uh, registration and the universal provision of a free ID to every everyone. And when you you know as soon as you graduate high school, something like that, whenever you turn eighteen, a free ID uh, that's that's universally available and universally accessed, uh, that'd be fine. Well, that's not what's being proposed. What's being proposed now are voter ID systems in different states, some of which require people to travel long distances to buy identification. And I absolutely believe and, and agree with those who've said, including civil rights leaders, that this is a return to a poll tax. This is requiring particularly low-income people to go to leap through all sorts of hoops and pay money for the right to vote. And it's an absurdity. And again, John, as you pointed out in my research in this, when I've looked at the studies that have actually ex- examined the claims of voter fraud, the evidence is is not even there's not even like a gray area here. There's just simp- there's yeah. no the, the number of instances of someone actually going to the polls and lying about who they are are infinitesimal. The usual case is someone just gives the wrong address because they don't want to re-register in different districts. They go to their old address. I mean, so you have like you have a few cases like that per century or something. And, and the interesting the other interesting thing is that that this is the great the fascinating part about it that in this election campaign. Uh, since the start of this campaign, we've had one glaring example of potential voter fraud. Seems to have been caught out in the state of Florida, and it was the the, the independent contractor hired by the Republican National Committee to register voters. And it appears that the that this guy was in fact uh, breaking all kinds of laws, violating all kinds of standards. And now it turns out the guy was operating in a number of other states. So uh, what was he doing exactly? Well, he was he was registering people. Uh, he was he was filling out registration forms. They're filling out registration forms for people who were uh, not necessarily qualified, didn't necessarily live in the right place. But then he's doing something else that was quite incredible. And it appears to have been happening in all places, places all around the country where they were registering a lot of people. Uh, having to fill out the forms, and then they were t- asking him, you know, are you Democrat or Republican? And the ones who are Democrats, they were tossing out. Let's go back to our phone lines now. This is Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Our guest, of course, John Nichols, who you've just been listening to. Let's go now to line three. Champagne, you're on the air. I very much uh, appreciate your program, and uh, I think that we should have a poll tax. Strongly accept that. I think that the poll tax should remit funds to the voter. In other words, everybody that votes get paid to vote, and those that don't vote don't get paid. In other words, don't charge the poor for being able to vote, but pay them and pay everybody the same amount. However, I'm going to shift subjects slightly here. During the debate, presidential debate, Governor Romney proposed no federal support for PBS. Programs such as yours is so far to the left that Karl Marx appears to be well to the right of your positions. (laughs) How do you justify spending United States federal tax money supporting a station that puts on a program such as yours? Well, um, 
this is since this is the last show, I guess I'm entitled to give this talk. There's very little money given to public broadcasting by the United States government. Uh, the, per- the, we have, uh, the percentage we give per capita, the amount per person, is well, well, well below even our nearest country, like say Canada or something. And most of the other countries in the world, uh, in Western Europe and, and East Asia, pay 20 to 50 times more per person to support uh, non-commercial, non-profit uh, public broadcasting. Uh, and in, on those programs, they support a full range of ideas. The idea, they're independent. They try to have programming that covers the entire spectrum or a large part of the spectrum. And that enhances political debate and dialogue. And I think the, uh, uh, hopefully this show contributes to that. But you'll be glad to know this show has never received any support whatsoever, uh, directly or, to my knowledge, indirectly. Uh, from any taxpayers. Uh, this has been uh, not following that code altogether. Uh, but I think your first point is the one that uh, is really the one I'd like to talk about. And John Nichols, this is something I know you've given a great deal of thought to. Uh, poll tax in reverse. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. And uh, I think it's an idea that Karl Marx might well have liked. Uh, and, you know, look, the uh, um, the interesting thing about that proposal is it's not a, a radical one. It's certainly not a, a new one. There is an example of that actually globally right now, and that is Australia. Uh, you get a tax break. You get a little bit of a tax break if you vote. And uh, in Australia, you're required to vote. It's a it's universal suffrage, as it's called. Um, and uh, but everybody gets, you know, when you vote, you get a little uh, little kickback on your taxes of 96 bucks or something like that. And so globally, there are there are indeed examples of exactly what the caller suggests. And I think it's a very it, it's exactly where we ought to be going as a republic. We ought to be talking. Maybe not. Maybe we won't take this caller's idea. Maybe we won't take some other idea, but we ought to be in a in a sense of urgency of crisis uh, when we have turnouts that are uh, literally half that of some other countries. And it's an absurdity. We should be doing a lot more to be bringing a much higher level of participation. We should couple that higher level of participation with a higher amount of information. And so absolutely, we should have a much stronger public broadcast system. That public broadcast system, say like in the Netherlands, uh, could and should support multiple networks with many, many different ideas, high standards, but a, a full range of ideas and ideals. You know, it's significant that the countries with the strongest public broadcasting systems are rated by corporate and conservative analysts as having the strongest democracy. Our guest, John Nichols. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters. We've got a couple callers I want to get to right away. Let's go now to line one. Champaign County, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, Christine counsels me that sobbing is inappropriate on the radio, so... <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll start with that. Um, just back to your two antagonistic callers, uh, Lake County uh, was also, I don't know about this research about the uh, real vote count in Cook County, but what I've heard as an Illinoisan is that uh, uh, Lake County was stuffing like mad as well and that uh, Republicans knew that, and if they had a real recount, it, they, they still wouldn't have known where it was going to go. And I'm going to interrupt you for one sec, caller, and just tell you that you're exactly right. In fact, uh, do you know who confirms your point? Uh, probably a Republican, huh? Richard Nixon. Uh, he was pressed by many of his supporters to do a recount in 1960. And uh, after an assessment of the information, announced very publicly that you know it would, it would be silly to do. Uh, ben Jealous on Democracy Now! made a point about the voter suppression thing, and that he's pointed out that uh, it's diverted a lot of resources. Now, they've been successfully resolved, but a lot of people were getting people IDs instead of registering new people to vote. And in that way, it has still affected, uh, effectively probably suppressed some voting. Uh, what I initially wanted to call about was something about foreign policy, and that's I understand Romney's going to really hit hard on on Libya, and I, I feel like it's going to uh, cause uh, the Obama administration to f- uh, feel like they have to do some belligerent action in the Barbary Coast, as it were. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I'm just, it's very unsettling because it's only going to make things worse. But wh- the other thing I cleared about c- calling about was the vote swap. There was a phenomenon in the last cycle, and I would like to urge all the podcast listeners in Wisconsin to call some kindred spirit in Illinois because the Green Party needs 5% of vote for the presidential to get back as an authorized party in Illinois. And I'm sure there's some people who are in Wisconsin who are uh, still wondering about what they're going to do, progressives, 
because of, uh, and I'm, I'm anybody but Ryan and Romney, but it's just, it's hard. <laughs> and I just think that uh, if we get some, some uh, collaboration, I don't know if, they, if the, the uh, voter anal- analysts would regard that as illegal. It's a free will uh, exchange. But the idea is, you know, I, well, I'm sure. I'll, I'll just uh, thank you for the great run and uh, be looking for you in other venues. Absolutely. And thank you very much, Champaign County. It's been a pleasure talking with you for the last 10 years. Uh, John Nichols, this whole idea of vote swapping, well, you know, it really also gets to the point that, that we know, but it isn't talked about a lot, that for president, we have 50 distinct elections or 51, including the District of Columbia. So those people living in Illinois uh, basically have no advertising, uh, have no candidates visiting to speak of. Those people living in Wisconsin or Ohio or Florida are marinated in advertising and have candidates constantly in their states uh, talking, at least with the presidential candidates. Uh, so what do you think? Well, they, the... Interesting thing is you take a look at the map of the United States as regards uh, competition. And here's a fascinating reality. Between the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, there's only one state that is in all measures, by all the different political observers and political analysts, an absolutely blue state. It is absolutely going to vote for Obama. There's simply no question that one state between the East Coast and the West Coast is Illinois. And so Illinois uh, is uniquely uh, disengaged uh, from the political process, sort of pushed, pushed aside because it is so clearly going to vote for Obama. And that is harmful to both parties, frankly. It's harmful to Democrats and Republicans uh, because you don't get a real campaign. Similarly, you just go across the border to Wisconsin, you go across the border to Iowa. Intriguingly enough, now if you're looking at new polling, you go across the border to Indiana, you've got much more competitive politics. And, and the question we ought to be asking ourselves is, you know, what do we do about that? In the short term, the vote swapping concept, something tried in 1980 with uh, backers of Ralph Nader saying, if you're in a swing state, vote for Al Gore. If you're in a, a sure state, or to, I apologize, 1980. I do that all back, the time. Wait, a couple extra decades, 2000, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, if you're not in a swing state, uh, you can vote for Ralph Nader and the Greens. Um, it, it's, it, I hate to say, because I, I love the caller's uh, idealism about it, uh, that there's not a lot of evidence that that a lot of people actually buy into that and do it. And and I think that our energy is probably better placed on looking for real reforms, real reforms that, that address why this occurs. And the number one problem in this country and an issue that we were fully ready to, to deal with and we talked about a lot in the 1960s and 1970s and now we almost never talk about is the absurdity of the Electoral College. This is all about the Electoral College. You understand that people would be coming to Illinois to campaign if you didn't have the Electoral College because they'd want to run the votes in Chicago. Republicans would want to run the votes in southern Illinois and you'd have a real campaign. Sometimes I wonder, as we do our book now, John Nichols, that you know probably the best hope to get rid of the Electoral College is all these uh, commercial media owners in New York and L.A. who are getting no ads whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd be flooded with ads suddenly if you just had a popular comp vote because they're the most populous places. Right. And there's one other way to get rid of the Electoral College. I don't think it's going to happen this year, but if if uh, Mitt Romney were to win the popular vote and Barack Obama was to win the Electoral College vote, you would suddenly find all kinds of Republicans and very conservative folks who are real traditionalists and believers in the Constitution who would come to the conclusion that this part of the Constitution ought to be dealt with. And so the fact of the matter is it's, it's very, very likely that we're going to have a circumstantial moment, a, a uh, you know in-context moment where the Electoral College uh, blows up. It almost did in 1968, and we had a, a wave of proposals to reform it. We would have, intriguingly enough, we would have gotten rid of the college, Electoral College in the late 1960s, early 1970s, if Richard Nixon hadn't uh, essentially gone to work to block the concept. It was it was that close to happening. I'm Bob McChesney. Down to the last uh, five minutes or so for Media Matters. Let's go back to the phone lines if we can. I believe line two, Champagne, is next in, in order. Hello. Uh, actually, Urbana. Oh, okay. Hello, Urbana. Uh, I was going to comment on the election fraud in the um, 60 election, but somebody else has done that quite adequately. I, I would want to point out, though, that this was not voter fraud on either side. It was election fraud. That is, it was government uh, party officials 
perverting the system, not voters doing yeah. it. And I think that's important to remember. That's an excellent point. Well, I, I'd also like to thank you for your tenure. It's <laughs> the most enjoyable. Much appreciated. And that goes to all the listeners who have the same sentiments. And as I, uh, if you want to contact me offline, I'd be glad to interact with anyone who feels like it. Uh, let's go to our phone lines now to our next caller. Line for Charleston. You're on the air. Uh, yes, I'm calling about um, another aspect of voter suppression, um, and that is the, it's kind of insidious, but the references to Ralph Nader as a spoiler, for example, which I think has been, as I said, an insidious campaign to, I think, dismiss and marginalize any growing energy for a third party. He was the most energized, his campaigns. And by calling him a spoiler, as if the elections belonged to Republican or Democrat, Al Gore, for example, um, is to marginalize and dismiss and minimalize the impact. And the third-party energy has really kind of gone out. He's becoming an old man, or he is an old man. And I don't know who's going to lead the cause, but you haven't discussed his lawsuit about um, his previous campaign, nor the exclusion of third party from debates. This is all voter suppression. And to call the entrenchment of the expression two-party system is another aspect. Uh, Ralph Nader, in my view, is an American hero. <laughs> and, and I think the Democrats feared his uh, support greatly. And I think they were largely behind the marginalization and sort of making him a, a fool. Um, in, in the public view. I read this every day on the Internet. Ralph Nader is the spoiler, and he caused so much harm. Not true. And that myth needs to end. So that's another aspect of voter suppression. And thank you for the program very much, and congratulations, Bob, also. I enjoy your program very much. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, John Nichols, before I hand the mic over to you, I'm reminded of the late, great George Carlin had a line once where he said, Americans love com competition. They love to talk about competition all the time. Uh, but they d never have competition where it actually matters. Mm -hmm. And he said phone companies and political parties. Exactly and, you know, it is one of the great frustrations, I think, of anyone involved in politics in America who has a point of view that is outside the narrow confines of the two political parties. The lack, the inability our system has to allow new ideas to get in, uh, and an inability that's even choked off more and more with the amount of money now it takes to be an effective participant. And I know you thought about this a lot because we talk about this all the time. Um, is there any way out of here? Well, there's a lot of ways out, and the most important one is is to uh, end the, the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is a totally corrupt entity developed by the Democratic and Republican parties to exclude alternative candidates. I think also it's an education issue. We need to um, not worry so much about a particular political party getting in or getting out of the debates. We ought to argue that having a multitude of political parties in the debates and in the process is how we get good ideas. The classic example just occurred in France uh, in their presidential election. There was a uh, really a fourth or fifth party candidate, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who uh, raised the idea of taxing speculation. Uh, it got so popular, his rallies were drawing you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people, that suddenly the Socialist Party, which was more mainstream party, Mélenchon very much on the left, uh, picked the idea up. And then by the end of the campaign, Nicolas Sarkozy, the conservative president of France, was talking about a financial speculation tax. And so you see how bringing in alternative parties feeds ideas up into the mainstream parties. It doesn't usually beat the mainstream parties. It makes them better. And that ought to be the argument we make to conservatives in the Republican Party, to liberals in the Democratic Party, that opening this thing up doesn't necessarily end their franchise or end their control of the process. It opens things up and gets better ideas in, like I hope this show has over the last uh, 10 and a half years. Thanks, John Nichols. Uh, we're just down to the last uh, seconds now, John Nichols, before we go off the air. And uh, just real quickly, uh, what's... Oh, I hear the band tuning up in the background right now. And that, of course, for our, my more astute listeners, is the uh, the rhythmic sounds of Count Basie and his orchestra, uh, One O'Clock Jump, one of the great tunes. And before that, for many years, we had Thelonious Monk as our serenading us on the show for the first five or six years or seven years of the program. Uh, at this point, I want to thank everyone who's been involved in the show over the years, all the guests, you, the listeners. Uh, my producers, all the support at WILL, and as always, I want to conclude by thanking John Nichols, my guest today, and the two people in the studio right now, Christina Williams, my producer, Kyle Croha, my engineer, who've been working with me uh, to make this the best possible show we can. Thank you, dear listeners. It's been a great run, and uh, let's stay in touch. Bye-bye. Democracy. Thank you.
Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings, or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners, or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. This is Illinois Public Media.